Hello and welcome to episode 25 of the Nerd Culture Podcast. My name is David and with me are the NCP crew, Richo. That's right, I'm here. Luke. Much to the chagrin of all. And Crystal. Now a new improved louder me. Yay, Woo-hoo. well hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> 25 episodes people, so this actually marks our one year anniversary. Yay. Celebrate us. good times. Hip hip. Hooray. Hooray. So who would have thunk it, eh? One year, uh, we've beaten the odds, as uh, Richard put it last night. It's uh, a true Aussie Butler story. <laughs> so take a look at us now. Who, won, who needs Red Dog when you've got New Culture Podcast? And we didn't mm. even have to eat any beetroot. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Why is beetroot on the Australian burger? What's so Australian about beetroot? Someone explain it to me. Send it in an email, explain to me why. Beetroot. You have to hand in your citizenship card if you don't know the answer to that. It just doesn't make any sense. Anyway. And other things that we wish to rant about earlier <laughs> Um, yeah, so we've we've uh, we've beaten the odds. It's uh, it's unusual for a podcast to survive its first year. It's, I think it's like eighty percent or something, or, or as Richo said, fifty seven percent of all facts are, <laughs> are wrong. <laughs> statistically inaccurate. Said <laughs> it on the internet. It's it something like true. that. So, yeah, so uh, it's time to take it to the next level. So it's a uh, nerd culture podcast two point If I can throw that nerdism in there, it's uh, very exciting. I'm excited. Well, I was expecting champagne today to celebrate, so where's my champagne? I gave you free DVDs, what do you want? You yeah, got tea. Point. I did give you pretties. And you got tea. That's true. I got tea. Celebrate with tea. <laughs> <laughs> and talking about celebrating, to celebrate our one-year anniversary, we're actually going to have a competition. There's uh, some awesome prizes, uh, more details about that later in the show, so keep listening. So has anybody got any uh, any thoughts on the past 24 episodes? It was all a blur. The heady days. The drugs, the rock and roll, <laughs> the, the colours, man, the colours, the groupies, <laughs> the actiony action, the, the Jabberwock, <laughs> always stirring at me. The important thing is, is that for twenty-four episodes, we've kept it real. And, and David hasn't killed Luke yet. <laughs> Why would I kill Luke? I love Luke. You threatened to kill him on a regular basis. <laughs> but uh, some of the highlights for me was just some of the people that we got to meet. In the, in the course of the show, so some of the, the interviews that we did, you know, Fred Van Lente, Brian Michael Bendis, Frank Cho, Bobby Ann, yeah, that was, that must have been Ben Hutchins. The, the interviews that you got, I think, are one of the best elements of It's a lot of fun. Podcast. Yeah, I, I really enjoy doing it, and, uh, and they seem to enjoy it, so that, mm. that's pretty handy. Mm. Um, the guest stars that we had, uh, Mr. Jason Franks, and uh, the writer of uh, Six Miss, and uh, McBlack. And uh, of course, uh, Aaron, the host of uh, the Black Panel. So it's it's been good. And but uh, now we're gonna we're gonna kick it up a notch. Oz Comic Con comes out uh, fairly soon, June thirty. So they've got some special guests. So hopefully yep. we'll get some cool. some action there, um, including the the one and only Mr. Stanley and Patrick Stewart and Patrick Stewart. Make it so. Yeah. So so that was pretty cool. Um, also, and just uh, just basically just spending time with you guys. Oh. Awesome fun. I thought our Blade Runner episode was quite good, and I enjoyed getting the feedback that we got for that. Yeah, from, from Blade Runner was really interesting. Yeah, yeah, from an older person's point of view. Yeah, it was good. It was really cool. I loved watching uh, David and Luke argue over a stranger in a strange land, <laughs> especially since it was a dust jacket, and I actually didn't have to do anything. I was able to just kick back, relax, and watch you two go at it. It was fantastic. <laughs> oh, one of my favourite moments is when we were talking about uh, two thousand and one. And we were talking about the uh, opening scene with the the apes, yeah. 
<laughs> and we're all making the ape actions. Yes. And then Richard went on to say something else, and then just in the background you could hear David go, Funky Gibbon. <laughs> <laughs> Funky Gibbon. We are here to show you how. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so it's it's uh, it's been good. Yeah, so I mean, there's been some really top-notch episodes. Our Star Wars uh, specials were quite cool and quite yeah. well received. Also, reviewing the entire fifty-two. Um, that was a huge undertaking. That was yeah, mammoth. Bring uh, I think we pulled. I think we pulled it off quite well. I think we did too. Yeah, when we had the unedited versions on the website and stuff, which was a. Which uh, people seem to like, so mm. that was pretty cool. But I won't be doing it again anytime soon. So brings sorry, back, sorry, people. <laughs> brings back memories of a very cold day in New Zealand. <laughs> 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 nothing better to do than read comics. Yep. <laughs> Crystal's, si- Crystal's sitting there reading comics. You know she's bored. Um, yeah. So on, uh, you know, onwards and upwards. It's uh, we start our second year of No Culture Podcast, and it's only going to get better from here. So if you've stuck around up to this point, thank you very much. It's uh, we do it for you guys. Yeah, um, you rock. It's uh, all our listeners, just a great, great people, and uh, couldn't ask for more. Really, I mean, it's just it's great stuff. Guess we got some great feedback. Hang around, gets better from here. You've had the origin. Now read the story. <laughs> <laughs> there was a prequel before NCP. Oh, that was terrible. Can't be, a, can't be, a, can't be a prequel because Richard hates prequels. <laughs> That's right. Although we did have that zero episode. That's right. We did have the zero episode. Ah, oh, jeez. Uh, I'm looking forward. Well, the main thing I'm looking forward to the next year is uh, just watching more crappy films, like, like we did last night. <laughs> is that something to look forward to, or aspire to be, or just you know accepting the inevitable? Well, I look at it this way, right? I mean, I would. There's there's a couple of there's there's films that we're going to see mm. this year that yeah. are already slotted that I just wouldn't have bothered seeing mm. if it wasn't for the show. Yeah. And, you know, you can't always see quality. <laughs> Sometimes you've got to see. You know, True. Although to be fair. Really to be fair, we do have Dark Knight and Prometheus on the way, and yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, so there's we've got a few, you know, what look to be at least really good films on the way. Yeah, and um, some of them have turned out to be surprisingly better than we thought. Yeah, and just most have seeing them with you guys is, is awesome. I mean, I mean, our adventure to see the Avengers. I mean, what, what we had to go through to get to see the Avengers, <laughs> and and was, what, you know, pretty cool. What 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 kind of conversation would we have after seeing a movie normally compared to what we have at the moment? That's right. We wouldn't go into this much depth on a regular movie viewing session. That's true. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> depends on how fired up we are, but true. Yeah, it depends on the film, I suppose. But now we get to share those conversations with all of you. Lucky people. So here we go. Year 2. NCP, episode 25. So for this episode, we're going to have a popcorn junkie on... Men in Black 3, uh, the, the obviously third instalment in the Men in Black series. An auspicious uh, way to begin the culture <laughs> podcast year two. Come on, it wasn't that bad. And a uh, round table on creator rights, specifically focusing on comic creator rights with uh, Siegel and Schuster, uh, Jack Kirby, The King, and uh, Alan Moore with the Before Watchmen situation. <laughs> Okay, Men in Black 3. Agent J travels in time to MIB's early years in the 1960s to stop an alien from assassinating his friend Agent K and changing history. And that's pretty much the entire plot, <laughs> in a nutshell. Yep. Uh, it's directed by Barry Sonnenfeld, who returns from uh, Men in Black 1. Did he do 2? Yeah, yeah, I think he did 2, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. he's done them both. It stars 
Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones returning as Agent J and Agent K. Uh, Josh Brolin as the young Agent K from the 60s. Uh, Jermaine Clement as the bad guy, Boris the Animal. Or just Boris. Just Boris. <laughs> and uh, uh, Emma Thompson as Agent O, since Agent Z kicks the bucket beforehand, which is uh, unfortunate because he, he was quite funny. Uh, Michael Stahlberg Stahlberg as Griffin. I don't know. Mm. I've never don't, heard look, don't look to me for answers on that one. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry, Michael, if that was completely wrong. But uh, there you go. So that's the main cast. I mean, look, Will Smith in this is basically just being Will Smith and not giving much to work with. You know, he does the best that he can. Um, he seems to be enjoying the part. He does, yeah. Uh, Tommy Lee Jones is, obviously, because there's the time travel story, Tommy Lee Jones uh, is really sort of only there at the start so, and at the end. Um yeah, it makes the most of what he's got. But uh, Josh Brolin, I think, is probably the standout here as uh, yeah, doing his absolute best young Tommy Lee Jones impersonation. <laughs> he does a very, very good job on but it. He has also, 10 points out of 10 from me. <laughs> but he also get, has a nice presence on screen, though. Yeah. And, and I thought he brought a lot more depth to the scenes he had with Will Smith because yeah. he was trying very hard not to just be Tommy Lee Jones. He was trying to illustrate the character as he was back in the 60s. Yeah. Um, but wasn't over the top or unnecessarily gruff was yeah he brought a, a nice charisma to the part I agree I've got a lot of time for Will Smith I'll see anything he's in because as our listeners will know I'm a, I'm a big fan he's just he's got a lot of screen charisma um, Tommy Lee Jones I thought was just sleepwalking through the part well he doesn't he, have a lot to do to be he didn't have a lot he, he's, yeah. he's got he's got the bit at the start and the bit at the end and to be fair he, in the previous two films he's been in it just as much as Will Smith has yeah but this um, he, was, he, was, he phoned it in there's no doubt about it. There is one uh, very good scene, I think, involving him and his ability to act um, when he actually places the phone call yeah. to Will Smith mm-hmm. early on and wants to actually talk to him and open up a bit and Will Smith is a bit dismissive of it. Yeah. Um, I thought that was pretty much the only scene that really gave Tommy Lee Jones the chance to show us mm-hmm. just how good an actor he is. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, Josh, I totally agree with the Josh Brolin comments. He's just... Um... He did a great job. He yeah, he's, he's, he's the real standout, he is, without a doubt. He's the only standout, in my opinion. I mean, as much as I, I like um, Will, it just really he didn't really have much to do. Mm. So, and Jermaine, unfortunately, I mean, I, I love Jermaine. We're mm. big fans of uh, Fly of the Concourse in this house, and uh, it just it's just such a shame he wasn't allowed to be funny. Well, mm. they didn't really utilise him much. I, I um I was disappointed he wasn't more Jermaine like, but I think he did a fantastic job because I forgot that it was actually Jermaine um, so he oh. encapsulated the character quite well, I, I just was watching him as the character, not as Jermaine yeah, yeah. but I was hoping he would be more Jermaine-like, mm. but um, you can't be Jermaine and everything That's true. Mm. The, the thing that I found funny though was he was using his David Bowie voice yeah, yeah. I like that <laughs> but so I would have wanted more of the David Bowie voice and less of the filter that they put, like, that they the that they put on it because yeah. I just thought it didn't act, the, the voice filler that they gave him didn't actually sound organic yeah, it sounded quite. Um, it sounded quite false. Yeah, and so it's it's a bit like I guess Christian Bale's Batman voice. It doesn't sound. It doesn't sound right. Just have a um, throaty and be done with it, Christian. Yeah. Seriously, um, <laughs> it just doesn't work. I, would, and I, I, I wouldn't thing, be scared. I'd be like, "What's wrong with your throat?" And this sort of gets back the, the Boris, the, who's the villain of the piece, which is Domain's character. Um, it sort of just be there to say, "I'm going to kill Agent. I'm going to go kill, kill Agent K." Back in the back in the past, and that's pretty his only function in the story. Mm. There yeah. is nothing really beyond. He does look cool though. 
He, look, he looks all right. Yeah, sure, as, a, as a villain, though, a there's villain, really yeah. not much to him. Mm. Well, that's the main, the main theme of this movie, is there's not much to it at all. But mm. uh, just one final thing on the, on the acting, is, is uh, this uh, Michael... I'm just going to... I'm, I'm going to stuff it up again, I'm sorry, Michael, but St- Stuhlberg. I think it's Stuhlberg. Yeah, as uh, Griffith, which I thought was he was very sweet. Mm. <laughs> I like I liked Griffith <laughs> as a character. The, the, the thing about that was there was an idea about him as well. Mm. And I sat there going, I wish there was actually more around this character. Oh, I also like Bill Hader as uh, Warhol, the agent in disguise oh, yeah. as Warhol. Mm-hmm. That was awesome. Not giving anything away. I, I was mm-hmm. mesmerised by Griffin's eyes. Yeah. Griffin was, I thought Griffin was just really sweet. And whenever he was, was a, on, I was He like, was, was a, really a cool. very interesting character that they could have done a lot more with. Mm. Yeah, I, yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, the big problem with this is really the story and the script. Yeah. There is, there is a storyline, agent and as you so well encapsulated in your um, in your opening there, and as you say, that's it. There is no deviation. There is a, a minor attempt to show Agent J in the sixties, mm. but it's not. This really isn't a fish out of water, and he doesn't he doesn't really look uncomfortable apart from one scene where a couple of police officers take issue with the fact that he's a black guy dressed in a well dressed in a nice suit driving um, a quite nice car. Yeah. The apart from that. You could have just set this in the modern day. Yeah, but he deals with aliens all the time. Mm. Being in it of the time period, it's not going to be much phase to it. Yeah, I don't know. Like for me, this—I mean, there's a point where they 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 get to Cape Canaveral mm. during the launch of the Apollo Eleven moon landing rocket, mm. and I mean, this is one of the you know, this is one of the three or four like key pivotal moments in 20th century history, mm. and. He's just like, oh yeah, this is cool. Yeah, there's there's no sense. He does of, say wow. Yeah, he does, but there's no sense of I'm in the sixties. Yeah. You know, there's no real. I think, I think the thing that, that captures that the most is when they're driving along in the car, and he's there in the sixties, and he spends all his time looking at K because mm-hmm. um, he's he's just so it's like wow, mm-hmm. well, it's a young K. Whereas in, I've been looking out the windows, yeah. and it's like mm-hmm. wow, we're in 60, 69 New York. Yeah. You know, it's like this is just. I, awesome. don't, I don't know. If I went back in time and I was with somebody I knew from the present, but they were much, much younger, I think that would take all there'd my be, attention. There'd be a bit of there'd, there'd, yeah, be, cool. there'd be a bit of both mm-hmm. because it you're actually seeing them in the context of the time period in which they were in which they their star shone. Mm-hmm. Um, so he should be he should be. Do, I'm seeing both points. Both your points. He should be doing both. He should be amazed at Kay as a younger as a younger man, but also amazed about the world that he now finds himself in mm-hmm. because it is completely different. Well, the, um, yeah. yeah, that sense of there was no really no sense of this is the '60s and you know trying to capture that feel of the '60s. Mm-hmm. It's just like, oh, this is a nice backdrop. Let's throw them into it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the film started without a script, so that's that in pretty, itself uh, speaks for itself. Pretty bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, it actually started filming without a script, so it's their first couple of days of filming is, is all improv, and it's like this could possibly be in the story. It's, it's mm-hmm. kind of strange. <laughs> But not really, not as uncommon as you would think. <laughs> I know it's it's, it's um, not good. I, I also had a big problem with the comedy in this film. Mm. Um, in that it wasn't funny. Well, there is actually uh, quite a telling line where um, after um, time has changed and Agent K is no longer in the present, and Jay actually arrives at uh, you know at the Men in Black headquarters, and he thinks that it's a big joke because nobody can remember K except for him. Yeah. And then he actually makes a line, which is the rules, and I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know, the rules of something being a joke is that it has to be funny. 
Yeah. That's quite a telling line because really it would have been great had the screenwriters <laughs> actually applied that rule to their own script. Oh, um, the geez. jokes in this are obvious and they're broadcast. It's like, here's a joke, it's coming up. You'll know exactly what the joke's going to be. So wait for it, wait for it, here it is, and bang, there it is. You know, it's like, there was nothing. There was a couple I of found that moments. fun in the same way. For the same reason I watch Get Smart, I know what's coming up. I, mean, I can say the lines with the people, and I, I just found that a bit of fun. I, I didn't go in expecting for highbrow comedy. I just went in expecting I, what I got, and I, I wasn't disappointed. Uh, my problem was that I just didn't find the comedy funny. Mm. There was there was actually only one one scene, really, that I actually laughed at. And that's when Kay's actually leaps off a building to travel through time. Yeah. And as he's falling, um, he's flashing through different time periods. One of the time periods he flashes into is 1929. Mm-hmm. And there are all these stockbrokers who have left <laughs> the whole building with him. Yeah. <laughs> um, I thought, yeah, that was funny. But otherwise... I, I loved just, that sequence. That was mm-hmm. awesome. Yeah, but mm-hmm. otherwise I just didn't find... I felt the comedy really fell flat. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it, was, it wasn't it wasn't a laugh a minute for me, but I um I did enjoy it. I, I had a few giggles out of it more than you, I think, but not as many as the rest of the audience. Yeah, I kind of got like the in jokes. So like they had the the talking dog. Yeah. At, at the, at the, <laughs> the amazing speaking dog. The amazing speaking dog poster at the at mm. uh, Coney Island, which of course references the talking dog from yeah. the first one. So it was. Mm. Uh, I mean, that's what well, why I don't get, quite get why he had a great big picture of the dog at his bedroom. That was kind of bizarre. <laughs> that was a bit weird. That was kind of weird. <laughs> but, uh, but overall, I just, I, just, I just think the story was just kind of weak and just not mm. really deserving. Yeah, there's a, they had a line, but they didn't actually follow it through. Yeah. Um, and, and part of that is because they don't act... There's a moment where you've got two Boris's yeah. in time... And they do nothing with either of them. They just, right. They're just... Well, they have that one scene where they're both talking and stuff, and I was like, okay, this is cool. And they mm. now follow on? No. Mm. <laughs> and, the, and, and Boris makes this thing, oh, we're going to do it We're gonna, We're going to do it better this time. And they don't... And they do it... They just follow the exact same the exact plan. Same yeah. Um, the production is probably the strong, one of the stronger aspects, particularly in terms of, in terms of um, set design. I thought the recreation of the factory, yep. um, Andy Warhol's famous um, art studio... Uh, were fabulously done and it was one of the moments where the strangeness of the 60s um, was quite prevalent yeah. and worked really well mm. the scene went on for a bit too long yeah but the the recreation of it was quite startling the um, the recreation of um, the Men in Black Space also pretty well done yep. the cinematography wasn't bad yep. it's sort of a bit by the numbers just point put the camera here light yep. it well and it looks okay. There's nothing selling about the cinematography, um, but I give points to the production team for actually creating a film that still looked okay in spite of some very obvious flaws on the story end. Yeah, I think uh, special credit here, as always, has to be paid to Rick Baker. Yeah, he's just what a an absolute master, and the alien designs, the, just... the alien designs and, and makeup and effects were just brilliant. I'm glad you brought that up because because when you see Men in Black headquarters. 2012, and you've got the aliens and stuff mm. like that, and they sort of look like the aliens you'd expect to see. Mm. But then when they go to 69, and you like headquarters, and you got the the 60s the 69, aliens, the 60s aliens, <laughs> yeah, and you say my, you know, my favorite Martian style and yeah. the Mars attack style and, and stuff. I was like, this is awesome. Yeah, it's but a, see, that's something that could have actually been in the plot as well. Oh, definitely. looking at looking at um, you know the difference between the 60s aliens and the modern day aliens. Yeah, you know what sort of what, what sort of creatures were coming to Earth? How long do you want this film to be? <laughs> um, it's I like three hours of your version. Well, you could take you could take out 
you know, the plot. 90 minutes of what they did do and put in 90 <laughs> minutes of what Luke wants, I suppose. <laughs> That's true. But yeah, they but, points, points to Rick Baker. Yes. Yeah, fantastic. I, I, like, I think it was a very pretty film. It was... It was uh... The set designs were great, and the, tra- the time travel sequence was awesome. And uh, but that's yeah. the main, that's the main problem. Though. I think I think it looked so good mm. that it just highlighted just how poor the story was. Which a is bit a like a, a bit like Avatar in that respect. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Although, although awesome. with, with Avatar, it was a serious film, so I went in expecting a, a better story. But with this one. Yeah. I, I, I think Avatar has a much better story than this does. Oh, so. I agree. I disagree. At the end of the day, I totally disagree. Avatar's a, just a, I could predict every single second of Avatar. Oh, of course. I mean, Avatar's story. Yeah, I could predict every second of yeah. Men in Black. Avatar's story is not good, but it's still better than Men in Black Three. Oh, I thought I found Men in Black Three more fun. Oh yeah, it was much more fun. fun. I was Avatar's bored during Avatar. To be serious, yeah. I was bored during Avatar too. So. Yeah. but to bring. Crystal's point back to Men in Black. It's it, it's the highest problem with the previous two Men in Black films, which is that they did look great. Hmm. That there was a sort of there was something fun behind the concept, but ultimately quite hollow films. Oh, it's great, particularly yeah. Men in Black Two. Men in Black oh yeah, two two's awful. But we'll, one, we'll but one, one was. Uh, see, the problem with one is that I wanted in the I wanted I went in going, wanting it to be having wanting to have a lot of fun, and ended up not having a lot of fun just because it was so bland. Yeah, yeah okay. actually, I agree with you. No, no, which no, probably no. didn't help me seeing Men in Black three because I actually saw one, really didn't like it, and uh, I never actually saw two. I was never interested in the feedback from everybody else was that it wasn't very good, and their comments were usually much worse than the first one. So since I didn't like the first one, I didn't see the second one, and I'll be honest with you, I wouldn't have seen the third one had it not been for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm I'm completely. Uh, I wouldn't say completely different, but I really like one. I think it's yeah. Uh, I really enjoyed one. I thought it was a lot of fun. But uh, two is atrociously bad, mm. and uh, and three was definitely not as good as one, but way better than two. So it was uh, it was a return to form, but a better story would have helped. Yeah, I think a stronger story would have helped. But uh, there were a lot of good ideas in the special effects, like the little aliens hidden in Boris' hand, and yeah, that's cool. The way he's face worked and there's mm. lots of cool little ideas in there but didn't really explore mm. those yeah that, that, that's, that really is it lots of really nice ideas that I wanted to know more of mm. yeah but I like hits, start, hits but it I, on the head but maybe I you should like do some fan fiction Luke unlike well, like, <laughs> <laughs> in black four <laughs> unlike but unlike the Star Wars universe in which you say hey that's a cool element but I'm really still enjoying the story yeah this is hey that's a really cool element why can't that be the story yeah I did like the scene where the astronauts are in the in the cash room. Like, for, for report this, they're just going to shut us down. I, just, I didn't see anything. <laughs> <laughs> I see nothing. Yeah, the, the the Cape Canaveral reconstruction. Yeah, is excellent as mm. well. Just yeah, one, another mm. another credit to the production team. Um, I enjoyed watching actors from all the TV shows that I like pop up, like um, Mr. Wu from Deadwood playing another um, character another Wu. Mr. Wu. Chinese gentleman called Wu. <laughs> to the point where I just went, why can't Al Swearingen just show up um, and have a rather amusing but highly offensive conversation with him? Um, and also Devin Banks from 30 Rock. From 30 Rock. And um, you're ready? I give this one look. Okay. Purely for production. Um, I went into this expecting just to go in and have a bit of fun with it, and I wasn't disappointed. It was... It was fun. It looked good. Uh, I, I liked the time travel aspect. I give it three and a half. I give it one, Luke, and I give it that one for 
the production design, Rick Baker, and Josh Brolin. There was absolutely nothing else in this film worth watching. Fair enough, cool. Um, yeah, like, like I said earlier, it's uh, I, I had fun, so um, I didn't <laughs> obviously didn't hate it as much as you guys. It wasn't, it didn't waste my time. It was pretty much the same as Dark Shadows. I mean, I didn't, I, mean, I was. It was okay when I was doing it, and then I walked out. It was Dark Shadows is a bit more entertaining, though. I thought. Well, as as evidenced by your rating, but uh, no, I mean about Flurry, I give it uh, two out of five. It was uh, I won't rush to see it again, but uh, anyway, I didn't want my money back. Okay, well that wraps up our uh, <laughs> our review of Men in Black Three. Uh, coming up next, Round Table. <laughs> Okay, so welcome to our roundtable on creator rights. With the with the uh, the imminent uh, publication of the Before Watchmen uh, comics, has created a bit of controversy online. It's been a, quite a a large. Mm-hmm. Storm in a teacup, in my opinion. Anyway, so it's like there's a big uh, kerfuffle. A, a bit more than a storm in a teacup, <laughs> I think, but it's, um, it what has exploded. It has. Uh, it has exploded. Ignore Maybe my a tornado in a latte mug. <laughs> <laughs> and what's been interesting about it too is that it's not just fans this time around. No, creators have actually been heavily hmm. commenting online yeah. in mm. relation to creator rights and comments. Tweets have been flying back and forth. Yeah, like mad. Um, so we thought we'd take the opportunity to uh, make some comments of our own. I mean, we've we've mentioned it in past podcasts, and uh, but I thought it'd be good to sort of look at sort of the, the broader idea behind it. So, I mean, why are people so upset about it? I mean, it's not just the Alan Moore fanboys who I am happy enough to be, you know, a member of. But uh, it's it's just it's more of a it's really just a case of respect, I suppose. This is why do the comic companies do what they do? And uh, some examples of when they've done it in the past. I think money would be the answer there. <laughs> yeah, it would be. No. Yeah, there's a couple of uh, pretty major legal cases that have come up in recent times. Um, the Siegel and Schuster estate, who have uh, been after the rights to Superman, Superboy, and related characters. It's been a case that's been going on for a while mm-hmm. now, but with actual judgments coming down, uh, that's sort of brought it back into the forefront. Uh, you also have the Kirby estate. Um, and their legal challenges against Marvel, um, and uh, the uh, Joe Simon also um, in his efforts to reclaim the rights to Captain America. Can I ask a totally noob question? Yes. Given that you said Kirby estate, I'm assuming that uh, Kirby is no longer with us. Yeah, Jack Kirby died uh, in the early '90s. So we'll focus mainly on those people. Of course, there's been other creators that have been involved. Um, and we'll also mention, um, of course, a focus on the Alan Moore before Watchmen situation. So we'll start off with uh, arguably the, the, the grandfather of uh, superheroes, Superman, and uh, his creators... Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. That's right. It's, it's a very interesting story. Richard, take it away. Well, Siegel and Schuster actually created Superman initially as a pulp character um, in the early to mid-30s, and they tried to sell... Mm. They had a story called The Reign of the Superman, in which Superman was basically a dictator... Um, <laughs> he's a bad guy which yeah. is a mental, and I meant, but his prowess is more mental exactly yeah and um, yeah they couldn't sell it to the pulp so they kept reworking it reworking it and um, so many of the comic book companies actually rejected it mm. um, I bet yeah they were kicking themselves afterwards but, um, <laughs> but they're also trying to get it up as a comic strip as yeah. well because um, the thing you've got to remember pretty much before this is that um, if you were 
into comics and things like that, the place to be was comic strips. Yeah, the the, the money was in comic strips. Yeah, as comic books comic were books. sort of seen as an afterthought, a cheap. They just did you know knockoffs of the comic strips, reprints of the comic strips, um, and weren't seen in anywhere near as high caliber as the com- as the comic strips were. So, so eventually, uh, DC Comics, uh, national, national periodicals at the time, national um, allied publications. That's it. Uh, does actually buy the rights to Superman from Siegel and Schuster. For the paltry sum of $130. Which, to put in context, even for the 30s is not a very considerable sum. It's the 30s, so there's not a lot of money floating around. Yeah, it's 1938, you've got America slowly emerging from the Depression, and you, you know, comic books are still in the sort of early stages of their development, so the idea of launching an original character um, was still relatively new at the time. Um, as you said, most of the of the comics being published earlier than that were often reprints of comic strips. Um, there was more of a foot-in-the-door sort of situation. So I had this character, they yeah. thought it could do well, 130, yeah. while not huge, especially not nowadays, but it's, it's, it's in a while not a big thing, at least it got them into the industry and where they wanted to be. So Very true. It accomplished what they wanted at the time. Yeah. And of course, Superman then goes on to become the most iconic superheroic figure um, to emerge from comics and one of the true icon figures of the 20th century um, makes national billions. And the Superman symbol is the most recognised superhero symbol in the world. Yeah. Today, so exactly. Um, so we'll talk. A bit, we'll talk a bit about about how DC or National and, and slash DC have, have treated the um, Siegel and Schuster. But it's just it's just one one thing I just want to point out. I'm glad you just mentioned all that. This is just the juggernaut that Superman is. But without DC doing what they do to promote Superman mm. and getting him out there and backing him and all that sort of stuff, would we have still had the Superman that we have today if Siegel and Schuster? Had tried to self-publish or something, you know, mad like that sort of stuff? Probably not. If they had published it as a comic strip, it might have achieved, um, say, a Flash Gordon, Dick Tracy-like level. Yeah. Which are, both Dick Tracy and Flash Gordon were huge strips in their day and still quite um, popular. Still quite popular, but not the same level. But they're not, they are not icons the way that Superman is now, so possibly not. It's about to say what would take the public's imagination. Mm. imagination. Yeah, that's that's the base of the point I'm trying to make. I suppose. I mean, you're right. I mean, obviously, it's conjecture. It's just I just think it's it's important to not make DC Comics the complete bad guys right from the start. This is. I mean, if without DC Comics, I just don't think Superman would be where he is today. And so, all this this you know this. This evil desire to get yeah, this evil corporation stuff. I mean, yeah, we'll, so we'll get into it. And yes, they've done some horrible things, but I just don't want to. I don't want to paint them with that brush right at the start. No, and, and 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 no, it's without DC Comics, Superman would not be as we know him and know him and love him today because um, they kept him constantly in the in the public eye. That's right. Um, so with that being said, though, <laughs> uh, it's. Uh, yeah, 130 is obviously a paltry sum, but you know they 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 got it, and then they went on to have their careers. Unfortunately, though, the way they treated um, their careers weren't were what they really should have been. I think. I mean, it's, they, I mean, they went on to have some some minor sort of comic careers, and they've, they've done mm. other comic work and stuff like that. But uh, because they just they basically sold the character, they didn't mm. have um, what you would sort of expect nowadays with like you know medical. Mm. The medical benefits stuff and, with benefits and stuff yeah. like that and that really worked against them 
Sort of and there was also no royalties or anything. Yeah, no royalties. I mean, they they sold the character mm. Lockstock and, mm. and Barrels, and they were they were kind of pushed out and away from the character by DC as well. Yeah, DC they DC established a house style uh, for Superman, which in the early days was based on uh, Joe Schuster's artwork. Mm. But then, as art styles developed and things, they were kind of just you know quietly shown the door. Mm. Um, when when new artists came in and... I guess by those selling the whole character, you've sold any rights you've got to that character. And, right. and at the time they sold it, the, who was they went to know Superman would become the granddaddy of all superheroes. That, that is true. That is yeah, the major point. True. Yeah, that is the major point. It's just, I mean, it's, it's... I mean, they got what they wanted... At the time. At the time. Mm. But then, of course, you know, when the, the explosion occurred, they're like, well, we want to be a, bit, a little bit more of this well, the, pie. But DC um, could have been nicer about it, but they didn't have to do anything. There's definitely some things DC could have done. I mean, they had a byline, uh, you know, created by Siegel and Schuster in the comics for quite a while until a uh, legal case. But that byline actually didn't come into play until, until yeah. the 1970s. Mm. When guys like Neil Adams... When, no, when, yeah. no, no, no. It came, it was, it was, it was in the 40s. Uh, and it? then they dropped it. They did, um, yeah. They dropped it when uh, the the Siegel and Schuster people uh, tried to sue them, and then it was brought in again in um, the seventies. Yeah. Uh, when the just when the films came in out, and a whole bunch yeah. of people got together mm. and said, "This is disgraceful." Yeah, like Neil Adams, because Neil Adams has actually been uh, a champion of career rights. Yeah. For most of his career, mm. and got really got behind. Mm. Siegel and Schuster because he thought nah, this this thing's making think, billions and billions of dollars and they are entitled to a share of that and at exactly. that point they were their health was deteriorating and they really needed medical mm. care and things yeah. so um, and the major reason DC backed down is because the film was coming out exactly more the negative part of the publicity mm. around that yeah and so yeah. They, they, the byline well, was the byline was I actually put the, back on in Superman 3 or 2 yeah well, I think the uh, sort of conversing to what you were saying earlier about you know Superman not being as successful without you know DC's backing. Hmm. At the same time, DC wouldn't have had the character of Superman yeah. without Siegel and Schuster. There's that as well. So, yeah, that as well. So it's kind of a uh, there's a sort of balance. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there. that DC hasn't done hasn't done wrong by these guys. I mean, some of the stories are just horrific. I mean, like where uh, um, Schuster becomes a delivery man. Hmm. Whether this is actually true or not, I don't know. But it's, well, it's, and then delivers a package to the DC offices, hmm. and he's he's down and on his luck, and he looks yeah. and. Uh, they basically give him a hundred dollars and say go buy a suit so that you know just get out basically just get out of here. Yeah. And I just, if that's actually a true story, that's that's pretty well, that, bad. That got um, <laughs> Rick Veach took that story up and put it into the Maxi model. One of the things I read online about on Newsarama about all this is that um, one of the, that they did a, a a series of interviews or statements by creators talking about the current you know state of creator rights and what it means and what's happened in the past and one of the things that they said one of the that i think one of the anonymous creators said was um siegel and schuster knew what they were getting into yeah and then i and whilst i i think that you know they, they were they are certainly told to what is this does need to be said and addressed and maybe discussed they knew what they were getting into yeah um you know they were paid well during their tenure mm-hmm. on the book mm-hmm. um that they had been in the industry for a while so that they should have been more aware of the type of contract they signed and what the work situation actually was. This is going to be a bit of a bit of a theme between all of our sort of sections in this mm. in this roundtable. Mm. Is just that legally, mm. none of these companies have done anything wrong. Mm. Yeah, and, and 
the, the essential I, argument... What, what I find so fascinating about it is that yeah. Yeah, legally it's all, it's all, yeah. clo- it's all yeah. closed and everything's yeah. fine and all sorts of stuff, but whether it was actually morally right or not, yeah. it's a whole different story. That's really what the argument comes down to. Yeah. Legal responsibility versus moral responsibility. Yeah. Mm. We haven't really answered one point. Did Siegel and Schuster get screwed over? Because, you know, they did sign a contract, they did sign away the rights. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to, um, I was going to ask your opinion. I think um, more, so, more so back then, something I think we really need to take into consideration. There's a difference, I think, between Siegel and Schuster signing a contract for $130 in 1938, hmm. when the comic industry is still in its infancy, and when you're coming and, and, out and the, of... the Depression. Yeah, you're coming out of the Depression. You're, you know, you're eager to get work in any way you can. That's a lot different to say... Um, Alan Moore signing the Watchmen contract, which I'm, we'll discuss a bit later, I'm sure. But yeah. in the mid 1980s, having had 50 years of knowing exactly what DC what is like as a company, yeah. um, even or even Kirby um, in the early 60s, right. you know, Kirby had actually been had actually been through the 30s, 40s, and 50s, um, and you know knew what the companies were like and had actually worked for them. He actually left. Marvel. He and Joe Simon left Marvel out of a lack of recognition for what they were doing with things like Captain America. Mm. You know, and they went to DC because DC was offering them a better deal, mm. um, as far as not create ownership goes, but certainly as far as acknowledgement of what they were creating and better pay and things like that. So, so I think it's hard to really say that Siegel and Schuster knew what they were doing and knew what they were getting into at that point in time. Hmm. I think they were just desperate. They needed work. They needed to make money any way that they could. So, But, but not yeah. only that, it's actually, they actually treated quite well yeah. at the start. I mean, it's, it, I mean, it sounds bad to us because $130 is pathetic compared to the billion dollars that DC mm. has made out of Superman's. But they actually, I mean, they actually were given... In, I mean, we're talking 1938 here. Two guys that have never had a proper job. Mm. They were allowed to run a studio yeah. and were periodically given bonuses beyond what they originally had and uh, it's it this is i mean there's the nine thirty hours. i mean it's, it that was i mean that was unheard of it's, i mean they, basically they had True. steady jobs mm. uh, where they were doing what they like which mm. is they were making making comics mm. which it wasn't they, until later until a little later when they said okay well can we start having some royalties and stuff and they were told that there was no money well, i can't give you royalties because the comic's not making enough money and it's like yeah. are you serious <laughs> and, and this is i think the yeah, this comes down to that Huge. moral that moral responsibility because you know by nineteen forty forty one, Superman was a success like a oh massive selling success. millions. It was mm. selling millions of the comic itself. Yeah, I mean you started to get. I mean then you, then you got uh, the radio the, show. The radio show. Yeah. It was just it was everywhere. Cartoons. So no exactly. No so, money in the till is just is insane. Yeah, um, it is. Why didn't they just say, well, you never signed for royalties instead of just telling them a lie? Well, it's, it's well, it's, like... it's, it's, the business was kind of dodgy in those days. I mean, you, you, have, to yeah. sort of, you have to sort of think that, I mean, not only, I mean, comics were like just an afterthought, like like Luke said yeah. and stuff like that. And um, the guy, the, the, I think his name was Donna, Donafield, who yeah, basically Donafield. ran. From what I can gather, no one really has much of a kind word to say no. about Donafield. He was, um, yeah, very much a... Bit of a sure. bit of a mobster, bit of a mobster, bit of a shyster. But but still, but still, you still got to give him credit in the terms in that he he gave them a chance. Mm. I mean, this is an untested, and that product. that is true. But once once again, the moral thing: once your yeah. product is making millions and millions of dollars, <laughs> yeah. and I mean millions of dollars in the nineteen forties, then 
surely you could spare a little bit for the guys that actually gave you the, the, yeah. the product in the first and, place. And the answer is clearly yes. <laughs> so another point, uh, even if uh, the, I did, I did it all legally and up above the board. Wouldn't you treat the creators of this juggernaut a bit better in the hopes they might come up with another one? I'm so glad you said that because that's one of made that's one of Alan Moore's major complaints mm-hmm. is that why would you? I mean, I've given you Watchmen. I've given you V for Vendetta. I've given you these products that have changed comic, the comic industry. Why would you treat me this way when I can give you more products of this nature? Mm. It sounded like what they really needed was a, a renegotiation clause in their contract so that if the, um, the project either was a success, for, a success or wasn't a success, um, both parties could renegotiate where their standpoint was so they could have actually had yeah. an opportunity to get um, a royalty after a certain period of time or the rights revert back to them after a certain period of time which is more of a standard these days it wasn't a standard back so much back then mm. um, but it would have actually it, it does show I guess the naivety in which they entered their relationship mm. with DC about Superman yeah. mm. and the same I think is also probably um, true with Kirby as well he probably needed that renegotiation clause for Captain America and for some of the stuff he did um, for Marvel and then later on back with DC. Well, I mean, Kirby's, as I suppose too, we've got to look at the situation in which Kirby um, came to Marvel. Because once again, in, in a sort of similar case in some respects to Siegel and Schuster, the comic industry was absolutely hammered in the, in the late 50s. Mm. I think it's impossible for us to really think of what would, must have been going through the minds of the creators in that late 50s period when... Mm comic sales plummeted when mm. opportunities for creators were rare and a lot of the creators left the industry they went into advertising they went to you know they tried comic strips and kirby himself tried comic strips mm. if you look at where he was at say 1960 there really wasn't the opportunity so you, you can imagine him signing a contract that would just ensure that he would get money right. to support his family what was because the thing about with Steve Schuster, obviously they were after they were trying to reclaim Superman. What's Kirby trying to reclaim? Well, what is his estate trying to reclaim? Well, the Kirby estate is trying to claim most of the characters he created. They certainly there was a um, there was a claim for the Silver Surfer, definitely. I think for Thor as well. I mean, a lot of this also stems from the fact that obviously the once again movies is what brings this into prominence. Mm. You know. Um, the Kirby one became quite prominent, especially in relation to the Silver Surfer, because first of all, because Stanley fully acknowledged that Kirby had created the character and brought yep. it to him, and secondly, the second Fantastic Four movie had come out, and so it's, and the Silver Surfer animated TV series as mm. well. I think their main the push is, is for his art. Mm. They just want his art yeah. back. Yeah. Well, that's actually that's actually another case as well. I mean, so it's much a, of his art just magically disappeared from Marvel. I know they said they said that they had it in the vault. Um, they were storing it on his behalf yeah. in the vault, and in, so that so by saying that they didn't outright own it, which means they didn't have to pay taxes on mm-hmm. it, so they were storing it for him. But then when he actually said, "Okay, we'll hand it back," mm-hmm. like, "Oh no, sorry, it's gone." Yeah, and, so, <laughs> and for for anybody that's interested in the little, not. for anybody that's interested in the little background on that, I'd actually check out Jim Shooter's blog, which is Jim yeah. com, I believe. Yeah, um, great stuff. Where he actually does go into a, quite a bit of background detail. On well, what he actually created the, the gym shoot. Actually created the uh, the art give back. 
yeah. scheme. And, so, and and pushed for certain royalties to be given to creators as well. Yeah, so he designed um, the system on which on which pages which people got because there were, there were multiple people involved. And... But yeah, in many, in many respects, I think, yes, Kirby was in a different situation mm. in that, yes, he did have his 20 years of history already in the industry up to that point. And of, you know, in his mind, certainly, and there is definitely arguments for it, of getting screwed over by, by, by companies. Mm. But at the same time, there was still... You know, still, I think it's good to look at the the context of where he was and where the industry was at that time. But well, unlike unlike Seagull Schuster, he was actually, like you said, he was in the industry for quite a, quite a while before yeah. the sixties when he you know, better than before and stuff right. like that. And um, so he, he, I mean, but don't you think then he he sort of with that sort of background knowledge, I mean, he wasn't just the you know fresh off the bus. I mean, should we have? And he was a name, like he was, he was, he was one huge. of the first superstars of comics. Like well, the, the just... Simon and Kirby creative team was seen as let's the just... creative team in comics. Yeah, it's just, it's impossible to, I think, downplay his importance to Marvel. But at the same time, once again, it comes back to the Siegel and Schuster thing. Legally, Marvel had no obligation to give him any more than what he got. Yep. Um, he was well, he, and he was well compensated yeah. monetarily speaking. Yeah. His, he was earning thirty five thousand dollars a year up until nineteen seventy. And really, his uh, I, I think his frustration and what led him to to leave uh, Marvel to go to DC was less about um, you know the rights to the characters or anything, and more about you know creative rights, acknowledgement yeah. of the stories that he was effectively writing. Yeah. That Stan Lee was then scripting over, and and I think really just acknowledgement that he was the co-creator of those characters. And that's not to say the stuff that he created for other companies as well. I mean, the Fourth World. Oh, absolutely. For DC. Yeah, you well. look at uh, well, even even before that, yeah. for DC, you look at. I mean, he created the Newsboy Legion and the Boy Commandos, which were in World War Two hugely successful titles. Yeah. Um, you know, he and Joe Simon helped create uh, romance comics. Mm. Which was a massive seller in the fifties. I mean, there's, yeah, there's. And then after after Marvel, you had your you know, Pacific Comics, and yes, the Silver you know, Star, and Silver Captain Star Victor. I mean, the guy could not stop creating. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a reason why he's called the King. Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> um, but yeah, but it comes down to that to that, I, I guess that moral obligation. I mean, Kirby m- helped make the company what it was. Stan Lee got a fantastic deal from Marvel. He got. He gets like a million dollars a year paid out to him from Marvel, mm-hmm. you know, for his efforts in in making the company what it was. And I think it's. I think it's important to note here. It's just. I mean, it's, it's Stanley cops a bit of flack for his shameless self promotion. Mm-hmm. He's the master of, mm-hmm. of the of the Stanley show. Yeah, and that's fine. That's part of his charm. I mean, that's, that's just what makes him what he is. But it's it's. Let's not uh, take away from the fact that he helped Kirby. With these things, I mean, Absolutely. what was the well, level of, of of cooperation? I mean, who's to say, really? I suppose. But well, really, I mean, when it, when it, it comes was a to team effort, anybody that's worked in a collaborative, creative environment where you're constantly throwing ideas back and forth at one another, you really do lose track after a while of who done yeah. who created what. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the Batman, the Batman Joker situation, I think, is is the most fascinating aspect of that. It's mm-hmm. just well, I mean, I think, who created what and. Like one person says, well, I created the look, and the other person says, well, I created but the, yeah, the, the action. But that is also an interesting one for another reason in that, unlike Siegel and Schuster and unlike Kirby, Bob Kane, as soon as he came up with the creation of the character, which he actually took from Bill Finger, but that's neither here nor there. Um, no, but see, that's important. But they, okay. See, where Bob Kane came up with the idea for the character where he took from Bill Finger, this is the way he just dismissed that just then. It's like, well, what actually, who created what? 
Hmm. So where okay. does the credit go? But that's the sort of thing that I'm trying to point out. It's like okay, well in, in the Batman's case, was, most yeah. of it is Bill Finger. Okay, yeah. most of it's Bill. Most, most of it's Bill Finger. Yeah. yeah. So then you get to the case of so then you get the Marvel universe, right? So yep. Kirby and Stanley. Who yeah. created what? I, I just don't think well, it's really, really important to know who created Galactus's helmet versus put the G on his on his belt buckle. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? I just I just don't need to know that. But really, at the end of the day, the acknowledgement should be created by Jack Kirby and Stanley. Yep. Because that that acknowledges the collaborative hmm. uh, nature of pretty much all of what they were doing, certainly in those early years. Yeah, let's give credit where credit is due. In my opinion, I just, yeah. I just don't see how that's how that's such a big deal. Hmm. I mean, why yeah. is that so hard? Well, then of course, I mean, of course, the, then you get the, the legal thing, ramifications. That's right. It. Then it becomes you know, do you give just creative credit, which is really what they've done with with a lot of Kirby stuff. Yeah, you know, the created by Jack Kirby. Um, certainly appears on anything related to his DC work. Mm. And, you know, you, we even got it in the Avengers film. I will argue in support of Jack Kirby till the end of time. Yeah. You know, he's my single favourite comic artist of all time. But what are you arguing but in support of, to... though? Mm. That's, well, that's, I mean, that's what's, what's from... the thing. No one denies his contribution. Well, no one denies is, his genius. The interesting thing is, Kirby level, himself though? didn't really make much of a claim. Yeah. Like, he never really made a legal claim to the characters. No. Um, and it seems to me, from what I've read of interviews and things like that and commentary from people, more than anything else, what he sought was recognition yep. um, for his work. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, it is, it, it is a difficult line. Where do you draw the line? I mean, if you acknowledge that, you know, Kirby deserves some kind of monetary compensation for his characters, then doesn't that mean that everybody that ever created a character deserves some kind of monetary payment and do for they? Marvel. I don't. I mean, I'll throw it out there. I mean, if you're working for Marvel as work for hire and you're, you're employed by Marvel to write comics mm-hmm. and you create a character and that character is no longer yours. Well, well I, think you've got to, I think you've got to look at different time periods yeah. for me. I mean, if you're signing up for Marvel today... Then you've got to know that what you're doing is work for hire, and, and everybody knows that. Well, now it's work for Disney. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. But you, you've got to, you've you're got not to know. getting anything. You're not getting anything from these people. You've got to you've got to acknowledge that that's the case because you know that that's the case. Because mm-hmm. with creator rights being you know as powerful as it is, if you're looking to be a comic creator and you're not looking into what all of this means, mm-hmm. then you're mad. You're mad. Yeah, you're absolutely <laughs> insane. You know. And, and especially nowadays when you have options for creator-owned companies yeah. like... Um, Make your Mitch. own comic. Mm. Yeah. I mean, become Hickman. Yeah. And get your own stuff out there. Exactly well, right. And you also can write do, for the Yeah, for the you can do... Channel. Really, you can web-publish nowadays, so you, yeah. you don't even have to worry about the print. Well, an interesting, argument, an interesting argument that, I, that I've, I've heard is that... Well, if that's the case, so if you follow my line of reasoning, whereas if you work for Marvel and you create a new character, and it, it, therefore it's not yours, it's Marvel's... Mm. Does that mean that you sort of lessen your creativity a bit and so don't try and create... You don't try and create the next Spider-Man because you know that that character's going to be awesome and, and it's, but it's not yours so you're not going to get anything out of it. So do you sort of do you sort of rein yourself back a bit and sort of only concentrate on I, your own career and no, stuff? No, I think... Because uh, it's all cumulative. If you, if you gain a certain reputation for, you know, a certain kind of laziness in, in one regard, then that's going to, you know, have a knock-on effect. If you're seen as being lazy for, let's say, working on Spider-Man, mm. well, then why should I pick up... Yeah, the creator-owned book. The creator-owned book. Why should I check that out if I think you're a lazy writer mm. on um, a think, work but that uh, on a, a title where you're meant to display a certain mm. amount of professionalism? Yeah. I think it also um, depends I'm totally, on... I'm totally with you. That's good. Yeah. Well, I just want you to sort of just finish up a bit with, with Kirby. It's like, well, what, I mean, what do you think does... 
I mean, I think we're all pretty much in agreement that he just deserves the recognition that he should have. Absolutely. Like, and, like I said in, the, in, in a past, um, past, pod, and a past I th- episode. I think his, I think his estate, um, he himself, his estate deserves some compensation because, yep. you know, DC is making money off both his creations and his name. DC. DC, both, well, well both and DC Marvel. and Marvel yeah. are, both make, are making money off both his creations and his name. So well, the fourth yeah. world was a major part of yep. the Final Crisis. Yeah, anytime you slap Jack Kirby's on a book, yeah. and they've done a lot, Jack Kirby's Omac, Jack Kirby's Fourth World, Jack yeah. Kirby's Demon, yeah. you know, Jack Kirby's The Losers, I mean, they're making money off his name. Yeah. Um, so he, he deserves some compensation. I do, I, I do also see the other point, though, um, that those characters are, at the end of the day, owned by DC and Marvel. Um, I think also if you look at the the anything before the the early eighties, yeah, there's also the the fact that there were no royalties yeah. at all. You know, it was part of uh, I think what Marv Wolfman's argument when he actually uh, sued for ownership of Blade when the Blade movies came out. Yeah, you know, back when he created Blade, there were no royalties. You know, so unlike the creators in the eighties who actually do get paid, you know royalties from the characters' appearances and from the sales of trades and sales of the issues themselves, that sort of thing. With someone like Kirby, I mean, he was getting a page rate. Mm-hmm. Page rate, maybe a nice bonus here and there, you know. So I, I think it is fair to acknowledge that, you know, given that your company would not be where it's at without his contribution, mm-hmm. that he gets, you know, morally he gets paid. Yeah, so something. once again, we go back to the moral argument. Exactly right, well, yeah. I mean, you can't just blindly go in and expect... Mm-hmm. The corporation to look after. They're going to look after themselves, mm. which is what they're designed to do. Unfortunately, you've got to be legal savvy. Yeah, but like like, like I said in the past episode, uh, it's just I, I think Kirby just. I mean, if you're going to call him the king, just treat him, mm. treat him the way that you've you know, that the regard mm. that you seem to hold him mm. in, you know, give him fair treatment for that. Well, this legal savviness we're talking about, I think, is a beautiful segue into Mr. Moore. Alan Moore's Alan case Moore's <laughs> and uh, the situation with Watchmen. Exactly um, right. Um, which, which this I, is where I'm going to get fired up. <laughs> well, to me, this is actually, I think, a very... Whilst similar in some respects, it's actually a very different situation to the one that Kirby was in, mm. and certainly the one that Siegel and Schuster was in. Mm. First of all, Alan Moore was a big name at the time. Like, certainly Watchmen solidified him as one of the all-time great creators, but mm. he was already in a position at that point to negotiate yeah. with with DC about yeah. Watchmen. Mm. Um, you know, he'd, he'd established himself. I mean, his Swamp Thing run was being critically praised and was selling very well. Mm. You know, people were loving everything that he was producing. Mm. Um, and for good reason. He was also in a situation... <laughs> oh, absolutely. Look, I, I'm an Alan Moore fan myself, so... Um, well, he's... I, I have no shame in saying he's my favourite comic yeah. creator. I mean, he's, he's... I mean, he's... I don't think he's done... He's contributed as, as in the same sort of way that Jack Kirby has, who will always be, be hold high respect in my regard. I just, but I just think but, this, what Alan Moore has done... Well, his, his, contributions, the comic just, his contributions are enormous. Beyond part. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, he was also... He also came into Watchmen at a time when royalties were now commonplace. Yeah. You know, both Marvel and DC had established proper royalty programs, you know, of some type. Um, by that point, and yeah, so and yeah, he was given a contract, a proper contract. Well, that depends on your point of view. Well, the contract, the contract is a major bone of contention mm. for for multiple reasons mm. by multiple people. Um, yeah, he was given, a, 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 he had the contract, but one of his major complaints about it, and I know what you're about to say, so I won't say it for no, you. No, but, no. but but 
one of the major part, part parts of this contract was was of course the clause that if Watchman ever goes out of print, mm. uh, the rights will revert to you. Mm. Right? Um, but which we'll get to in a second. We'll sort of flesh out a bit. But also they had another clause in there saying that if you don't sign this contract, we'll sign it for you. We actually can legally sign it for you. <laughs> power of power of attorney. Now, well, really, so they're the two. Uh... They're the two major parts of that contract where he where he's contesting the most. But. And I'm sorry if I'm stepping on your toes here, but no. one of the major things you need to know about this is, and yeah, that contract sounds kind of dodge, mm. without actually reading it. Obviously, we can't see the full proof, but it, one of the major things you got to think about is, is that he didn't actually read it all himself at the time. See, that that's a problem because he really you should have presented it to a lawyer. Yeah, had the lawyer go over it with you, and they would have found that clause and said this clause is ridiculous, is ridiculous, but. Um, but it's, don't you think well, it's, don't you think it's of... very important? It's, it's really important to note that up until fairly recently mm. he's never read the contract mm. that he's complaining about mm. it's like well well there is I mean there's there's, there's <laughs> yeah, two that makes, makes... <laughs> well, there's, there's, there's two very different clauses there the first one as far as publication of the book goes now okay at the time there weren't a lot of trades coming out in 86 I can understand them you know putting that clause in without any real understanding of whether the book would even be successful I mean it's a pretty challenging book and even with Alan Moore's reputation as it was at the time, I can imagine that they they would have still seen it as a risk because it was a very different book to what they Well, they're very legally, legally savvy. Um, so for them to have a clause saying, okay, well, if we stop printing it, you can have the characters back. Yeah. Mm. That, that says to me that it wasn't, it wasn't magnanimous on their position. It was more of a case of, well, we just don't think it's going to be all that good. Yeah. Uh, or we, the, we the think it's going to make us some money, but we don't we don't know whether it's going but, to. But be. But we're not going to. You know it's going to be the phenomenon yeah. that it is. But there's there's a thing online where people seem to feel that um, DC keeping the book in publication is some kind of malicious effort on their part to keep the characters away from Alan Moore, which Why? is clearly not the case. The book. I wouldn't say it was just clearly not the case. No, I, I don't we, think we, it's we, the we, case we at all. The book was released. It was a massive success and a critical success. Yeah. Then they published the trade of it, and that becomes a massive and critical success. Now, from a business perspective, you're going to be like, wow, this is our biggest selling trade paperback of all time. We're going to continually keep yeah. it in print because it's making us money, and I'm sure that they are paying royalties to Dave Gibbons and Alan They do. Yeah, Alan Moore says um, when they get, they get annual uh, regular yeah. checks or whatever. Yeah. It's, not, it's not a lot, but we um, still get it. Blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, so I think Alan Moore's situation, I think, is actually quite different to what Kirby was in. I think it's quite different. It's an interesting contrast, I think, Mm. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he is actually benefiting quite substantially still from Watchmen. I mean, he's still getting royalty checks. So I think his situation is a bit different because they are actually... He is actually could be benefiting from this if he chose to. But that's not the case, um, though, Richard. It's, it's, It's... That's not what he's upset about. He's not upset about the monetary gains. He's upset about... That's why it's a different situation. He's upset about the way he's being treated mm. and the way that his creations are being treated. So what, the way he's being created, the way he's being uh, treated as a whole, and now with before Watchmen, how his creations are going to be treated. Mm. Money's not really. I'd be a problem. interested to see whether he thought of that when he, you know, whether he thought of Len Wine before he started his Swamp Thing run, or Joe Orlando before. You know, he did some of the the horror stuff he did with the Orlando created characters, or, or Mick Anglo, or Mick Anglo when he did uh, Marvel Man. Or okay, I well, mean, I, knew, I knew this. I knew this argument was going to come up, but it's it's it's, it's important to note that um, he didn't know that the Marvel Man situation 
was, no, he wasn't didn't. like at the time. So no, he thought, Deskin, he thought Deskin owned yeah. the rights. And he did say that if I'd known that at the time, I wouldn't have accepted. Yeah. The Swamp Thing thing is interesting, actually, because he act, cause I'm, I'm totally with you. Right? So, so I mean, he basically he took I mean, he took Swamp Thing, created by Len Wayne, and, and made it the success that it, that it was. And uh, at, before researching for this for this roundtable, I was exactly the same as you. I was like, well... What are you talking about? I mean, you've got no leg to stand on. I mean, you basically took other people's characters. You're, I mean, your career is basically made up on the fact that you took other people's characters and made them the brilliance that they, you know, mm-hmm. enhanced them to what they are mm-hmm. now. Um, and there's no denying that that's that that's what he's done. But and so I was kind of like, well, kind of like, well, what are you talking about? I mean, of course, the big thing is League of, League of Extraordinary Generals. So I'm sure yeah. we'll discuss that in a second. Yeah. But <laughs> so, but then I read it, uh, an interview that he did that he did uh, where. My whole whole opinion changed because of what he said in this interview, and it's, and it's pretty common knowledge that Alan Moore is is quite confident <laughs> in his own abilities. You know, you know, I mean, hesitate to say arrogant, and uh, I, I I wouldn't hesitate to say arrogant. He believe, he believe, he constantly lambasts the current industry for produ- for not being able to produce something as good as, as Watchmen. Yeah, but but isn't that actually true though? Is there anything as good as Watchmen? Uh, there are the, things I think the there are things that. Are probably the equal of Watchmen, but more importantly, yeah. they're different. All right, let me let there me let me finish. A high let me finish. level of creativity going on in the industry. Let me finish my train of thought, and we'll and we'll go back to that. It's just, yeah. but, it's, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to. I mean, yes, he's arrogant, and he says in this interview actually that he took. I mean, yes, yes, Lin Wayne created the Swamp, swamp Thing, but, but let's face it, he's basically just a rip off of of. Uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, of course, but yes, the, the heap. heap. Yeah. Um, and you know, basically, so I took. So essentially what he says, and I'm not quoting him completely, but it's basically essentially what he says, well, I took this crappy character and made it brilliant. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, so that, well, that, that, that brings us then very nicely <laughs> back to Watchmen. Because let's face facts, the Watchmen characters are just thinly veiled versions of the Charlton characters created by Steve yeah. Ditko. Which he wanted so, to use, but was told he couldn't. Yeah, yeah. Because, they, because DC had other plans. Yeah. And look, I can understand that. You've got to look at long-term plans for those characters versus a 12-issue story that would make those characters not usable anymore. Yeah. You know, or at least not usable for well, another totally 25 years. Way, yeah, totally 25 right. years when they would have done, you know, before Charlton or whatever. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, hey, I'd like to see What could have been? That, actually. What could have been? But, um, yeah, I mean, does, does, does Ditko then deserve compensation? Because... Alan Moore just ripped off his characters and then turned them into Watchmen. I mean, that's, you know, does the creator of The Heap deserve royalties for Man-Thing and Swamp-Thing? Um, yeah, like, it's how a tricky far one. back do it, you go? It's a tricky does, one. It's... Do, does the creators of the Black Bat deserve credit for Batman? No, I'd go further than because the Black Bat and Batman sort of appeared simultaneously. The Bat is the contentious one yeah. because the Bat comes pretty before yeah. and has a um, similar yeah. origin story yeah. in some respects to Batman. So I suppose I'm a bit I'm a bit different in this case as I was with with the other two because in the other in the other cases it's a case of them not actually really getting any compensation. Hmm. You know. Like Kirby's estate is is you know Kirby, Kirby didn't get a great deal of compensation from them. Neither did Siegel and Schuster. Alan Moore actually is getting paid royalties. He is mm. getting movie money given to him so that he can reject it and take his moral stance. So I think the cases are a little bit different. Um, and the morality of it I don't think is as, as bad because, as you've pointed out, Alan Moore didn't even read his contract. Mm. Now, I'm, I don't know, maybe it's just... I mean, I do have 
you know, I did work for a law firm, but any contract you're given... You read. You read. You look at the details. You read the clauses. If you have to, you take them to a lawyer and have him explain them to you because... I don't think you'd even need to work in a law firm to, 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 to know that that's that. the it's way like, to go, yeah. I mean, are you serious? I mean, yeah. I, 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 I wouldn't even accept a job without reading the... And that, the PDA course, yeah. and the, yeah. and, the like, it's, and, and, it's and Alan Moore also at that time. I mean, we're talking 1986, mm. or let's say the contract was signed in 85, whatever. So he's not a seagull and shoestring. He's not free. You know, he's not. You he's know, not coming into it with his eyes closed. It's man. not a new industry. He's yeah. already would have been able to see firsthand what the industry was like because he'd been working in it for years. Yeah. He would know what the big companies are like. And given that the seagull and Schuster case came up in the 70s, he yep. would know about the creative rights. You would think. Mm. Um, so. I'd say he's coming into it probably with his eyes more open than either Siegel and Schuster or Kirby. Um, he said he said he says it was mainly more of a gentleman's agreement sort of stuff. So yeah, it was, well, you it should was never. A word, a word I, think, I think it's fairly safe it's to like, say. It's not like Jim Jim Shooter eventually being screwed over because Jim Shooter made the deal, but signed it with a handshake as opposed yeah. to pen on paper. Yeah, and that's the thing. You should never accept certainly for not multinational companies or anything like that. You should never go with a gentleman's agreement. But also, I wouldn't even go with a gentleman's agreement from a mum and pop well, store. Uh, but, even, but even so, like, well, of course I say the that clause, <laughs> but the clause is in the contract. Yeah. The clause actually states, if this book ever goes out of... Well, we have need to point out we haven't read the contract. I've read the clause from the contract, though. It has actually been okay. presented mm-hmm. online. So. Yeah, that's cool. so the clause is actually there in the contract. Mm-hmm. The other part about we can sign it, that, that's an entirely other moral issue. <laughs> Like that's that is dodgy as that is dodgy as, <laughs> yeah. but um, but when it comes to this clause, I mean, it's there and it does state, you know, quite her. And if the book hadn't have been a success, see, that's, then... that's that's imp- it's important to point out as well. Is that it's, I mean, DC took a chance with this book as well. Mm. I mean, they didn't know it was going to be the huge success it was. Whereas, mm. who would have thunk it? Really, I mean, it's mm. pretty, yeah. it's pretty in your face, Watchmen. So, and really, you're dealing with you know new characters that no one's ever heard of yeah. before in a new industry like in, in trade paperbacks you know yeah. it's a, a new facet of the industry so uh, I mean like I said before I just I, I'm sure that they thought hey who cares really in the end it's like well, I, you know, we'll make our money off it and when it dwindles down to nothing we'll give it back and who really you know gives a rat mm-hmm. but you know then of course become you know one of the most important comic books ever yeah and so, the single biggest selling graphic novel of all time yeah so it's so I just think I think it's it's a, it's a different case because it is a different yeah, case. He's, he's being compensated. You're right. It to some extent, case. he is getting royalties. He's mm. so because because it, it is a different situation. We're talking more about um, the way he's been treated mm. and the before Watchmen situation where mm. they're actually taking his characters. So we'll talk, yeah. we'll talk a bit about that. Well, so, let's, so let's talk about so Alan Moore. One, one of the arguments, like, like we said, is that. Uh, he basically made his career on on other characters. Yep. So and and you know one of the biggest retorts is like, well, what then? What about League of Shadows, gentlemen, and Lost Lost Girls, and yeah. quite a lot of feminists around the Lost Girls situation actually. Just, well, is it? Yeah. Is is he is he paying compensation to the estates of the writers? Yeah. Dan Barry, L. Frank Baum, Lewis Carroll, Bram Stoker. Yeah. Bram Stoker. Yeah. Bram Stoker, Robert Louis Stevenson. Um, so his 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 Jules responses Vern. his Jules responses Vern. to that is that they are public domain characters, which I actually don't know. if is that completely true? Not all uh, of them would be, surely. Not most the, of them. Uh, the Jay and Barry one has been an interesting situation. No, because he was because Jay and Barry used that thing. Yeah, their estates to own Wendy. Yeah. Legally, he doesn't have to pay money for public domain characters to the creators of those characters. Yeah. Right. But morally, given his own consternation over the way he's being treated, yeah, 
should he be paying money morally to those creators? What I should well, think, what, what I think I mean, is the most, uh, the most fascinating part is what he said that not only was it a public domain, but he actually said that it's because I'm taking these characters in, in the natural sort of progression. And once again, I'm not quoting exactly what it was as, but I'm basically... Yeah, but, you could say, the, but then you, you could apply that argument and say, well, maybe the creators of the before Watchmen comics exactly. are taking those creations in a natural... Well, obviously it's not the progression because uh, it's the prequels. Yeah, but, but the, 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 maybe, the, maybe the prequels are the natural progression for the I'm sorry, but the, the, the argument sort of falls a bit flat there because if you've read... And even in the first one, actually, um, a lot of the... He, he makes references and tries to allude to characters that have already been created, but he can't, doesn't have the rights to. So mm. um, the the celestial villain in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which is quite clearly Fu Manchu. Fu Manchu. Yeah, it's yeah. just that he's not saying it's Fu Manchu because he doesn't have the rights. In The Black Dossier, he makes a re- he, he, there's, there's a villain called Jimmy Bond, yeah. or Jimmy. And they make references to... Um, it's to Doctor No, to um, the Jamaican case in Doctor No, yeah. and in the recent 1969, they have a character called Jackie who who gets called Jackie Boy. At one po- at one point, a character another character almost calls him Jack Carter, and yeah. he looks like Michael Caine. Well, there's it's interesting. so this this whole oh no they're all um, public domain characters that is completely not true. He is using officially um, re- he's yeah. using characters that are actually copyrighted he's just worked out a way to work around that yeah. so he doesn't have to pay compensation i do want to give credit to uh, alan Moore in one respect though um i think what he did recently for mick anglo mm. um in relation to creator rights was absolutely fantastic mm. in working with anglo to sell marvel man to marvel but ensuring that mick anglo actually gets paid the money for it i think was actually Impressive, but yeah, it does. It does seem that there's a strange. I actually, I actually quote from. He actually did an interview with uh, Kurt Amaker um, from Sarah Sarah Books, um, which is at www.sarahfamira.org. Um, it's quite a fascinating interview, actually. It's, there's an audio version and a written version as well. But in terms of the the fact that he's taken other people's characters and stuff, I just want to read some of this bit. It says. With regard to the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, what I'm doing with that is a kind of literary game that has been going on for as long as books have been around. I mean, it would probably start with whoever came up with Jason and the Argonauts who thought, hey, wouldn't it be great if we had a sort of Justice League of ancient Greece? We've got Hercules and Jason and all these other characters. More recently, you have authors like Edgar Allan Poe. He writes the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket. So, so Jules Verne then thinks, hey, that's pretty cool, and so he writes a sequel to it. H.P. Lovecraft, he likes the same story, so he writes his conclusion to that story in the mountain, at the Mountain of Madness. Uh, I don't think any of these people would have minded because they were all good writers who were all bringing something new to the mix. They weren't exploiting the original works. Uh, so what we're doing is taking these characters that are mostly public domain, and if they're not in the public domain, they are often re- only referred to glancingly in a bit of a cultural joke. But I think there's no real comparison. In The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, I am not adapting characters. I am flat out stealing them in what I think is an honourable way. Well, I think the biggest problem here is that he seems to be saying that if Alan Moore thinks you're a good writer, yeah. then you can do whatever you like. Yeah. Or if you're Alan Moore, you can do whatever you like, because apparently he's a good writer. Yeah. Right? Um, but other writers who aren't Alan Moore, who aren't, or who aren't in Alan Moore's you know, field of who, writers that are good, can't do it because... Yeah. You know, and I, I find that that's quite a remarkable... He's, um, he's already dismissed all of the Beyond Watchmen creators. I mean, he's basically dismissed them all. Well, he's um, dismissed any creator that has worked on 
I mean, he does this, does this all the time. He dismisses any creator that works on any product of his. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, he had. I mean, he has some valid some valid points in his dismissal. I mean, obviously, I'm not a big Straczynski fan, but to dismiss all of them just because they're working on his stuff, yeah. I just think is. I mean, Darwin mm. Cook. Mm. You just can't deny the talent mm. that this man has. Yep. But really, once again, legally. DC can do whatever they like with the Watchmen characters because yeah. they own those characters. That's it. Right? And Alan Moore knew that they would own those characters hmm. and he that they would own those characters until the book stopped being published. Yep. Right? So really, legally, DC can do whatever they like. In this case, given the amount of money that they do pay Alan Moore in royalties and things, I don't think that they're morally wrong in wanting to take those characters... And publish new stories featuring those characters. It's what the comic industry is built on. Mm. Otherwise, you would have to rely on, you know, Stan Lee to still be writing Spider-Man or yeah, but you know, Len, his... Len Wein to be writing Swamp Thing instead of Alan Moore. Um, but his argument is that is that why touch a story that is complete and whole and then expand why, it in any way? Why make the Star Wars prequels? Why? Well, that's a pretty bad argument. They were no, made pure why take? But why take? You, well, the argument could be made um, for this one as well. Why take? Well, yeah, yeah. Why take Swamp Thing and continue to tell stories about Swamp Thing? Yeah, exactly. Um, why, to, why? 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 To, why, why take the Green Lantern Corps? You know that Alan Moore wrote stories for and tell new stories about them. I mean, that's you know. I mean, to, to argue that that his book should be held as you know sacrosanct when the others aren't, yeah. I think, is the height of arrogance. I think the whole situation is 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 kind of sad, really. I mean, I, I mean, I, I do, I do think that he has been um, and has been screwed over quite a lot by just the comic industry in general. Uh, I mean, I, just, I, 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 there's no doubt that he could have been treated better. Whether, but whether he's being legally screwed over, I suppose, is is a whole different story. I, I, I think that whilst there there is an argument to say that he has been screwed over, I don't think that in the case of Watchmen, it's anywhere near as harsh as he himself is pointing out. Partly because of the royalty thing, he is actually being compensated, but also partly because he didn't read his contract. Yeah. And that he should have gone into it eyes open. Um, there's other things, I, though. I mean, it's, I mean obviously it would be a whole different thing to just move on to other sort of stuff. But there's just there's been certain situations. I mean, the most important one would be I, re, I, I refuse to ever work for DC again. And then he's working for Wildstorm, who then gets bought by DC. And so he's like, well, now I'm now by proxy working for DC, which I, would, I swore I'd never do. And so what does that then make quit. me look like? Well, well then you just quit. I mean, I don't know. Sum, sum it up, I just, I, do I think uh, before Watchmen needs to exist? No, I don't think it needs to exist. But that's, but that's, I, a, that's I, sort I, of a different argument, though. I mean, yeah, but I, I don't think, want to read these books. I have no interest in reading them, but not yeah. because of a creator right thing, just because I just don't. Not interested in reading prequels. Yeah, because a complete story that's that a complete I like as story it is, in yeah. of itself. And yeah. It's just there's just no need to sort of delve into it. That's what I'm, yeah. that's what I'm saying. But it's it, like they don't need to exist. Yeah. But I'm not going to not read them because of some sort of moral stance by somebody else. Mm. I'll read them based on my own moral compass. One of the most interesting facets I think this is is well, if you have such a strong moral stance against this sort of stuff, that creative mm. rights and all this sort of stuff, and it, yeah, it's good that Robertson um, felt the need that he just can't work for DC anymore, and that's fine. But then. What does it mean for us, like the general Joe? I mean, it's, I mean, yeah, I, I think that you know, morally, they should be treating people a bit better. But I'm not going to stop reading Superman and the Marvel Universe, and mm. you know, 
Well, the good thing watch for Raiders, stuff just because of yeah. the way the, the Raiders were treated. Yeah. I mean, does the, that make me bad? Thing, well, the good thing for readers these days that if you do feel that this is morally wrong, there are so many other options yeah. for you these days. That's you true. can read Image. You can read um, IDW Dynamite. There are a lot of other companies out there. Dark Horse, who are carried, who, who do have stronger, yeah. you know, creator rights contracts set up for people. So, yeah, so you can move away and you can read other books and I would encourage people to do that anyway because... What if you're a huge Spider-Man fan like myself because he's the greatest mm. character ever and you're like, well, or it's, you know, Kirby treated bad and or Dick, uh, Dicko in this case, mm. uh, Dicko White, should I just stop reading Spider? I don't want to stop reading Spider. Mm. Spider's awesome. That's always the like thing with Batman. Yeah. I still read Batman even though Bill Finger and Joe Robinson were treated appallingly by both DC and Bob Kane. Yeah. Um, doesn't mean well, that I'm only... not going to read the character. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I will champion Bill Finger at every given opportunity and think that he deserved, in his estate, deserved substantial compensation and co um, and he should be credited as a co-creator of the character. Yeah, look, I, I agree with that. At the end of the day, I mean, I'll be honest, I'm not going to stop reading the books that mm. I love. Yep. The, the the thing that stops me from reading comics is if I don't like what the creative teams are doing or if I don't like the characters. At the end of the day, that, that's, that's the final way of saying I'll stop reading when they're crap. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm not going to stop reading these books, the books that I like, at the end of the day. Fair enough. Well, it's been fascinating. No real hard and fast answers, is there? I mean, it's all very... It's a very it's, emotional subject. It, 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 this is one of, because we're not arguing from a, and we can't argue from a legal perspective. None of us being lawyers. Yeah. Um, yeah. And the, the, also, the moral perspective. And also, also legally, from what we can understand, legally, that nothing legally has been done wrong. Um, it does come down to a moral standpoint, and it does depends on which side of the fence you sit. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's hard to objectively argue morals mm. because mm. morals are a very subjective thing, and uh, you know. Specific, usually specific to the individual. I think creator rights actually should be championed for. Yeah. Um. I. But I don't think it's it, it, it's not one sided. You just can't go in blindly expecting. Yeah. As a creator, mm-hmm. blindly expecting the companies to play ball with you. They have, you know, quite rightly their own agenda. You know, their their objective is to sell product to put out. Yeah. Um, which is what part of the thing that you're buying into as a creator in the first place anyway. So going in with your eyes a bit more wide open, wanting some things in return. That's I think that's fairly that's fair enough, and I do create champion creator rights. But you can't a have it all your own way, and b go and expecting you're going to have it all your own way. Yeah. Well, that was awesome, and uh, we were. I, I, I don't know whether we really answered any questions or you know I don't know, but it's we're very, very, very interested to to hear what uh, our listeners have to say. I mean. It's, it's, uh, so let us know what you think. I mean, some really good points, and uh, thank you guys. And uh, feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com. And I'd also love to hear from people once the Before Watchmen books do come out, whether the quality or lack thereof changes their opinion as well. Cool. Thanks, guys. Coming up. Coming soon. Out May 31st, we have The Chernobyl Diaries, which is a bunch of tourists hire a uh, tour guide, a crazy tour guide, who takes them on a tour of uh, the uh, desolation that around uh, the Chernobyl explosion. So and, just, to, uh, just to interrupt there, they call it the Chernobyl Diaries. Yep. And that's seriously the best film that they could come up with. 
Yeah, and then, and then there's, you know they get attacked by the creatures and stuff. It's basically a film version of the game Stalker, if you ever played that. A bit, uh, I know what, but... But it doesn't sound anywhere near as cool, which is unfortunate. Uh, and uh, not really pop culture, but uh, also on that day we get uh, get the Gringo, which is Mel Gibson's attempt to get back into the action scene. Well, maybe if Mel stopped being a crazy person, <laughs> people might appreciate his efforts more. Yes, you know, block off the source and you know attacking Jews. And... Yeah, exactly right. <laughs> I don't know, Tom Cruise. Well, in this case, he's shooting Mexicans. Tom Cruise is pretty crazy, and people seem to still appreciate his efforts. So. Yeah, not as much as they used to, but... <laughs> I'll, I'll watch Mal on the big screen, I don't really care, but, you know, his, his personal life. His personal life is his personal life, but... Uh, unfortunately, his personal life gets very public at times. Yeah, that's true. As long as he's still in good films, I don't care. It's just unfortunately, lately, he hasn't been in good films. Mm-hmm. Then the week after, on June 7, we get Ridley Scott's return to the Alien Universe with Prometheus. Hooray! Yay! Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really excited. We'll be reviewing this for the show. Absolutely. And, I'm uh, fired up about this. Does look very very cool. Well, I think the trailer gives too much away. I if, you, if you know anything about if you know anything about the Alien Universe at all, I think it pretty much says everything that's going to happen. I don't think it does. Well, it shows some cool it, stuff, but I, I think don't... it teases a lot. Like it, like a trailer should. It teases a lot and suggests a few things, but without you know g- giving away the whole story. Unlike say the Spider-Man trailer that which tells saw, you everything, which tells you pretty much <laughs> the entire film. Uh, and as always, NCP's favourite cinema, The Asta, has a great selection of films showing in the next two weeks, including an odd double on the June 3rd, which is Dr. Strangelove and Taxi Driver. That's a bit of a strange double, in my opinion. One to make you feel good, one to make you feel depressed. Don't you think that's kind of weird? <laughs> and it's sort of a bit of a fine line between which of the two that is. <laughs> I know, obviously, obviously the, only, the reason he goes insane in Taxi Driver is because they spiked his cock. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's the communist pot, plot to pollute our precious bodily fluids. <laughs> the communist pot. <laughs> <laughs> and you can check out their full listings at uh, au. So also in the theme of uh, coming soon, we've got Oz Comic Con. Uh, as I mentioned at the start, Oz Comic Con is coming to Melbourne. Uh, they've already had their Adelaide event, which was a big success. Uh, but it's coming to Melbourne uh, June 30 and uh, July 1st. So it's that Saturday and Sunday. It's, a, it's going to be a huge show. Very excited. Uh, as I mentioned previously, their headliner is you know, Stan the Man Lee. Uh, and also have a, a great selection of other guests. Uh, Patrick Stewart, Sean Mayer, Mayer uh, from Firefly. Uh, Mitch Pileggi from uh, The X-Files. Skinner himself. Uh, Jason Momoa from, of course, our beloved Conan film. <laughs> Game of Thrones. And also <laughs> Game of Thrones, where he does Star a good Gated job. Where he, does the, where yeah. he actually plays the Conan character. Better than in Conan, <laughs> but that's not even there. So it'd be great to meet him. Uh, Armin Shimmerman from uh, Star Trek is, is quite Quark! Uh, Francis Menopol, who's the writer artist for The Flash at the moment. Cool. Uh, Australia's own Nicola Scott, who is the former artist on Birds, Birds of Prey and is and now doing Earth 2. Earth 2. And so it's still a job, too. Pretty good and pretty impressive. And, uh, and a bunch of the kids from. I say kids, I mean they're actually young adults, but the, the people from uh, The Hunger Games, so there's three of them coming. No, that's actually quite an impressive lineup of... That's pretty good, isn't it? I mean, there are people there who I would want to see. Stan, yeah. Patrick Stewart, yeah, yeah. even Armin Schumann. Currently yeah. watching Deep Space Nine, and I love Quark. So uh, tickets are on sale now from Ticketmaster or at the door. So check it out. Their website is, of course, www.ozcomiccon.com. And uh, yeah, great stuff. We'll be there, of course. So it's, uh, I mean, it's at least, I mean, at least I will be. 
hopefully Richard will help will help me out as well. But uh, yeah, so we'll be there. So um, please, if you if you bump into us, say hello. It's our twenty fifth episode. It's our one year anniversary. So to celebrate, we're going to have a competition. Yeah, it's uh, a huge competition. Yay! Really, really exciting. I wish I could enter it myself. Get Yay. your pens ready. So uh, yeah, so get your pens ready to note down the rules. It's pretty exciting. So we're going to have two prizes. So there's a first prize and a runner-up prize. Uh, first prize includes a copy of the Prestige novel, uh, which we're going to be reviewing in our next episode for our dust jacket. Uh, a copy of V for Vendetta hardcover trade. Looks beautiful. Uh, the V for Vendetta DVD. And thanks to our friends at Oz Comic Con, they have generously donated uh, a couple of double weekend passes to include in our competition. So first prize also includes a double weekend pass uh, for both days, Saturday and Sunday. So two people for both days. How awesome is that? That is awesome. That's that pretty is good. pretty awesome. So uh, thank you very much, Oz Comic Con. Great stuff. Uh, we also have a runners-up prize pack, which includes uh, a copy of the Prestige novel, uh, as well as the DVD of the Prestige film. Uh, and the Killing Joke trade paperback, and a double weekend pass for us Comic Con. These are huge prizes. It's win-win, people. That's actually pretty cool. That's actually first and second prize are both awesome. I know. So it's not like yeah, first prize is awesome, second prize is you know a five dollar gift voucher or something. We rock. We do Our rock. Competitions rock. They are they, they are great prizes. Um, all you have to do to win these great prizes is to email us at feedback at nerdculturepodcast dot com. What was that again? Feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com and answer the following questions alright be ready to note these down people question one what was the highest rating Luke has given a film and what was that film and just as a hint there was actually two possible answers that's the only question that's going to get a hint question two name any two people we have been lucky enough to interview on the show and you can also include people that we had as guest stars we mentioned these at the start of the show people question three what was Richo's lowest rating for a movie? So the lowest rating Richo's ever given. And what was that movie? And question four. Name two guests that are coming to Melbourne Oz Comic Con. So there, we had, I just read out a, a bunch of guests. And you can also see the rest of the guests. Because there's more. I didn't read them, out, read them all out. Um, so you can read out the, see the other guests at uh, their website. So www.ozcomiccon.com so those four questions. So those four questions again. What was the highest rating Luke has given a film and what was that film? Name any two people we have been lucky enough to interview on the show and that includes the two guest stars. What was Richo's lowest rating for a movie and what was that movie? And name two guests that are coming to the Melbourne Oz Comic Con event. So just to clarify, to win, you have to answer all four questions correctly. Yes. Entries close midnight June 23 and the winners will be announced on episode 27 which will be out June 24th. Details in the show notes. Yes, all details will also be in the show notes. With the questions, in case you didn't have a pen in time. Well, we didn't ask you to get a pen. <laughs> Do what you're told. So what do you reckon, Bill? Awesome? Awesome. I think it's awesome. I think it's mega awesome. <laughs> Radic- radically rad. I think it's awesome. Totally sauce. tubular, dude. <laughs> yeah, so answer those four questions correctly, and you could be in the running for one of those awesome prize packs. Let's face it, like Richo said, either one, you're a winner. You're all winners. I'm a winner. You are gold! Gold! <laughs> You're a winner for just listening to the show. Don't forget, you can contact us by email at feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com or post on our Facebook wall at www.facebook.com backslash nerdculturepodcast or tweet us at nerdculturecast or leave a comment on any post on our website www.nerdculturepodcast.com 
And don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. Well, what a huge show. Thank you very much for uh, sticking with us. Uh, episode 25, one year of Nerd Culture Podcast. Yay! And there was much rejoicing. Sorry, we just watched the Muppet Show recently, and so I'm just I'm trying to do my best Kermit. Yay! Bork, bork, bork. I should just point out, you know, the terrible twos are coming up. <laughs> Next episode, we will have Dust Jacket on The Prestige, as I just mentioned in the competition by Christopher Priest. Uh, you ready for that one, Richard? I am born ready for that one. Pumped. And Popcorn Junkie on Prometheus. Yay! Exciting stuff. Oh, God, I hope it's good. <laughs> It'll be bad. And all of, all of that the... jumping up and down about how excited we are. We're going to feel mighty silly after that, aren't we? We'll have some tears if it's not good. <laughs> I, will, I seriously will, will cry the man tears. <laughs> <laughs> the only kind of tears he can't cry. <laughs> that's right. Being a man. <laughs> I remember when I was a boy. Anyway, that's it for me. <laughs> <laughs> that's it from the crew. <laughs> yeah, I got to have a drink. Stop laughing and then do that closure again. No, no, that was good. I'm no, giving it all. That was good. Richard. Remember, everybody, the prerequisite of a joke is that it be funny. <laughs> Luke. Sometimes Richard needs to pay attention to his own advice. Yeah, I'm glad somebody said it. Crystal. Bye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> oh, jeez. Bye! (laughs) We've gone mad! Crystal! Don't write any checks with your ass that your mouth can't catch. (laughs) <laughs> hey, you can't use the word ass. <laughs> Do that again, please. I'll put that at the end. I can't talk now. That was gold. Wait, that'll be the end bit. <laughs> <laughs>